0: I often wonder if the thing about retro chic is, is, a, is a huge circular thing. We've had the 50s and the 60s and the 70s all been fascinating. We're about to catch up to the 80s, and that's almost contemporary, and I think then we'll have to go back to, I don't know, the Middle Ages or something and start again. This may explain, this 80s thing, why there's a sudden fascination for Travertine. Uh, Mauve is back, Terrazzo is trending, and this is all <laughs> grist to the mill. Uh, for my guest, he's a comedian and design aficionado. You'll have seen him on the telly. His name is Tim Ross. And the 80s are his current bag. Uh, Rosso 88 is a new show. He's trotting about the boards of the country. And he joins us now. Tim, hello. Jonathan, good to chat to you, buddy. The the, the prospect of 80s retro becoming voguish fills me with
1: slight tremblings of terror. Oh, uh, I think it's... it's <laughs> I find the, ni- the 90s, the kids who are into the 90s fashion and 90s things harder to fathom for me. But you, it's, I'm, it, I've been interesting, I've been watching a, a shift because I collect furniture. Mm-hmm. And I've been watching this shift with what's popular and some of that 1950s furniture that was incredibly collectible, you know, has been for the last 20 years, is less desirable. And part of that is because if you were, it's it's a bit like the value of classic cars. (laughs) You know, what drives someone to buy a nineteen seventies muscle car is, Dad had one, or uh, I wanted one when I was a kid. So, but those people are now in their seventies or sixties, and but if someone who wants, like, say, for instance, who wants an EH Holden. If you were nostalgic about an erH Holden, you were getting to an age where you just simply won't buy those things, and so nostalgia tends to drive some of the interest in these things. So mm-hmm. you get to a certain age, or younger people get to a certain age, and they want to see what your parents were into or what was just before then. What I'm seeing now at the moment is a lot of sort of postmodern furniture turning up in auction sites and in in, in shops and furniture places, and, a, and an interest in you know an 80s Aesthetic. Well, and just describe that to us because people listening to what is an what is oh, 80s okay. aesthetic? What, what's I mean, what's so the palette broad, of the time? So, it's so broad because it could be an apricot colored couch, which you'll see. And then some of it's more of a that sort of quite bright colored, not a classic sort of Ikea stuff's turning up in auctions. You know, there's checked things. There's, you know, these Memphis red, white, and blue colored lamps. Lots of white plastic furniture. And some of that sort of late 70s, early 80s. Mm. everything sort of Blends together. Certainly, a lot more plastics. There's just a shifting. It's a softer, a more a more organic style. You see more, and the same thing is you're more 1970s stuff. And part of that's because there's just more of it around. And younger people tend to gravitate to that stuff because it's it's cheaper. That's what drives it.
0: Well, that, um, I, I, I want you, you mentioned then the you know the popularity the mid century. Stuff which we've got used to in in recent decades, but A, most of that's probably been bought now and B, it's become incredibly expensive.
1: So I guess then the the market rolls on. Yeah, and it's someone else's nostalgia. Mm -hmm. I remember my dad giving me this nostalgia book when I was 10 and it was called Whatever Happened to Blue Suede Shoes? And it was like a nostalgia book of the 1950s. I went, wow, what's this for, Dad? You know, know, (laughs) What, what, that was what? his nostalgia. <laughs> it's yours, you know. Is the eighties yours? Where were you then? Yeah, I mean well, I think we like I, I'm touching on the nineteen eighties, the nineteen nineties, and the early two thousands with this show. Um, because you know, every five years or ten years you get you get another year of being nostalgic for music. So in some ways it is, and I think sometimes it's more the social history that I'm fascinated with. You know, the starting point for my show is Expo eighty eight and I never went, you know, everyone went, I never went, my parents didn't, you know, weren't talking to each other by that stage, so we weren't going anywhere near it. But I know that other people were, and so it's fascinating to look back at it and looking at through sort of, A, the lens of the architecture and, and the art and design. So there's this...
0: Tell, tell us more about a, it, because this, this is sort of the age of the Expo. This was one of the last ones in, in Brisbane in 1988.
1: I mean, what set the scene for us? Yeah, well, I mean everyone will talk about it as a putting brisbane on the map it's you know brisbane's always been a you know a timber and tin town but they literally it went into development overload and it made the city sort of a bit like what's happening now with the olympics is it's making it take the next leap they put traffic lights in in places that never put traffic lights in before they put roundabouts in that they never had before and then they have to put ads on tv <laughs> to tell people how to use the roundabouts because the old right. people would taking the shortcut every time straight over they'd the top go, <laughs> straight over to the right so um it was huge and you'd hear you hear these great stories about people driving down from Bunbury for five and getting a six months went on for Expo 88 and they would drive down every weekend and and sleep in the car or sleep in the back of the uh, the station wagon and of course everyone went everyone went from overseas and Ken Woolley designed this incredibly colourful temporary pavilion and it had lattice and it was yellow and blue and pink and it had all that the optimism of the 1980s and then of course nothing says optimism like the 1980s other than ken doan and ken doan did this bright colorful australia sign out the front um which is now in some sort of suburban park somewhere that someone will email or tweet you about going it's actually here tim um but it, it it i suppose i started thinking about okay what 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 was there in that time that made us so jingoistic? What made us mm. full of national pride? And also what gave us a the sort of naive confidence as a nation? And that's really interesting to unpack. And and Ken Doan puts it quite well because, Ken, you know, you've got all these – particularly men, sort of taking Australian culture to the world. Paul Hogan's the most famous of them. But where did that confidence come from? What was going on? And Ken sums it up by saying that essentially what he believes is that his generation was the first generation in the 20th century of men who didn't go to war. And so they didn't have huge chunks of their life ripped out and they didn't have the trauma. So baby booms, plus this sort of sense of we can do anything and in a non i suppose non-internet world there was a this bizarre naivety about it and they had this extraordinary confidence and i think ultimately what i've been looking at you know going through this funny stuff and if you're looking at old videos a perfect match and all these bits and pieces that hit you with nostalgia is what have we lost in that period of time what happened to us that we've lost some of that confidence in some ways. 1988, I I mean,
0: 1988 is also, of course, the bicentenary, and that's a great turning point into what we've become as a more introspective country. But That was a time of celebration, yes, but also a time for Indigenous Australia of tremendous protest and anger.
1: And that's kind of set the tone of the subsequent period. Oh, yeah, and I think it's... Because it really backfired in some ways because it made us take stock of... What we were celebrating, hmm. and in in the show, I played this. Um, you know, of course, we had a jingle on a television commercial for celebration of the nation. The song was, and it's oh, of, you've given
0: me you know? an earworm now. <laughs>
1: I, I, I can remember that, and it's it's not pretty. <laughs> yeah, and it's got Carla Zampatti and John English and Burt Newtons there, and it's the widest lineup you've ever seen. And um, you know, it's Thomas Keneally singing, and you know, when you look at it. You think, oh, if you weren't asked to do that back in the day, and if you're still alive, you'd still be angry about it because they really did ask everyone. But that started to f- make us focus on other things, and I think that's a, a really important, and you said a turning point where we had to focus on what we were celebrating, and it made us look a lot deeper. At the plight of our First Nations people, and I think that's incredibly important, and still is obviously important today. Tell us
0: about the show poster for Rosso Eighty Eight. This this comes from the the Australia Post
1: provision. <laughs> the expo. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, I would sort of um, I'd, I'd been enjoying rolling around with this idea that you can sort of take these nineteen eighties motives for things and 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 reusing these quite nice graphic design from the time. And then, you know, then I get to lance around in a quite lovely, you know, over-the-top 1980s suit. But I think, speaking about nostalgia, I think I find myself thinking about the fashion from the time and things that I would have liked to have worn, but I was a teenager. You you know, a lot of the people that were quite famous in the 1980s, because it was a different time, you could be a middle-aged pop star like Phil Collins. (laughs) So now I'm in middle age... I can be a little bit like Phil Collins. I can be a pop star in my middle age. That's how I'm going to roll with things. Um, You know, it's the time of the travelling Wilburys who were hitting the top of the charts at the ages of between 43 and 58, which was amazing.
0: So if the 80s become cool, in a sense, that that means taking these slightly uh, ambiguous terrors to a, a new generation. I mean, how... How do you think young people pick the wheat from the chaff here? What, what's the impression that this next generation that sees this time as something nostalgic, or not nostalgic, but as as, as a retro chic
1: example? What, what are they taking from the eighties? Do you think? I mean, if you take just the the pure aesthetic of it, you, you know, you can you cherry they'll cherry pick whatever is a, a attractive to them, or you know, and you can never really pick what it is one of the most fascinating things of the last 10 or 15 years has been this, this sort of the the jewel songs of You're the Voice and more recently Daryl Braithwaite with Horses and you saw Daryl Braithwaite recently singing with Harry Styles. You know, mm. Extraordinary. But what is it about those two songs that can make a five-year-old sing and a 70-year-old sing, you know, that both of them will fill a dance floor at a wedding with people of, of all generations? And I particularly I think for whatever reason with, with Horses with Daryl Braithwaite, and you think, oh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a cheesy old tune and um, production's pretty old school. But ultimately what it comes back to is what young people identify with that is that it's the song that their parents and their grandparents sung and there is a slight irony to it. But it's just really something more simple than that. It's actually just ours. You know, Daryl didn't write it. It's an American That's song. Really but it, Yeah, <laughs> but, it, but, but but that version of it, it, it is ours in terms of something yeah. that we own and, and that that connects us all. And I think those, those moments are really important because otherwise, you know, we can't all dance to Eagle Rock for the rest of our lives.
0: No, best not. All right, Tim <laughs> Ross, challenge for you. If horses was a 1980s design
1: object, what would it be? Oh... <laughs> It's a really good call. Look, when it comes down to the crunch, I think it would be the stable table. Do you <laughs> me- do you remember Des- this? Describe this object, please,
0: for those who may not <laughs>
1: well, know. Well, it's basically a tray with a cushion underneath it so that you could sit on your uh, on your Jason recliner and you could play cards on it or you could have your TV dinner on it. I think it's very solid. It's there every day. It's a a workhorse, no pun intended. It's incredibly practical and it certainly does the job when you're drunk.
0: Stable table, very nice. Uh, If if slightly sort of creepy and and medicinal, uh, this this sort of old age care (laughs) sort of aspect of it. All right, (laughs) yeah. a couple of other 80s design words. Here's one for you. Stack hat.
1: Oh, I mean, stack hat is so iconic for us. And I think, you know, none of us ever bothered to unpack that it was called the stack hat because it's the hat you wear when you're having a stack, stack. I mean it's, just, its so brilliant but it does come from you know it was, it's just a product that was in the right place at the right time people may uh, not know what they, it is you better tell us well it's a it's a, they were yellow and white and it was the first as a multi-purpose safety helmet that we generally associate now with riding bicycles and when they started bringing in the legislation, for us to wear bike helmets, there wasn't many of them around because mm. we still, to this day, are one of. The, I think there's still only two countries in the world, us and New Zealand, where it's compulsory to wear a bike helmet. That says a lot about who we are and how we just sort of just love risk aversion in this country, which is sort of fascinating. But they became so really important to us, or they became so you know I don't know when they became important to us, but they certainly <laughs> they found their feet or they found their market share was because that was the only bike helmet that was designed to Australian standards. And no one really knows what that means, but we're pretty big on Australian standards as well. So they were just in the right place at the right time and they became everyone's favourite Christmas gift for kids and every kid needed one when they rode their bike around.
0: I, I do have a friend and
1: then, who still rides in one. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> She's I mean, never given sort of it like away. A, ho- a bit like a hockey helmet, I think that's what they took. Yes. They were designed in Melbourne in the mid-1980s. They're very chunky. They're chunky things and uh, Molly Meldrum wore one in the bike safety helmet and uh, ad at the time. Mm, v- visionary um, irony with, in that. <laughs> <laughs> you you've spotted it. And I think the idea that we somehow, you know, we needed to protect ourselves from getting on bicycles and in a way that no one else did and we needed something for it at the time and they just sit in our memory and they're things that people are quite fond of because mm. you know people had them when they were 12.
0: here's another another 80s design thing perhaps from the other side of the design arc uh, an lessy kettle
1: yeah I actually have one of these and it's but Richard sapper one of, and I, I Richard designed all these things in design TVs and I was in in Canberra the other day and I was as you do this won't surprise you I I saw a sign that said secondhand Gov- ex-government furniture. Do you think I went inside? <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, there's all this rubbish there, but there's a Richard Sapper green leather chair sitting there that they wanted $2,000 for, but it had come out of the House of Reps, that um, had gone into the new Parliament House. So, you know, this sort well, of... Sadly, they knew up. its value. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they would have chucked it in the skip and then now someone's trying to get two grand for it. But... Um, this particular kettle has comes with, with a whistle and it's got a replacement whistle because the whistle goes out of tune and and they knew that there's a design fault with it. So they give you a second one. Mine hasn't gone out of tune, but I'm pretty sure when it goes out of tune, I'll just leave it out of tune because it won't be that important to me. <laughs> but but what I love about it is my sister-in-law can't stand the bloody thing because she just wants to plug in a kettle. She doesn't want to put a, a, a kettle on the stovetop because it's too old fashioned and doesn't turn itself off. And it, and it lets you know that it's ready with a whistle. But she thinks it sounds like the siren from the old TV show, It's a Knockout. So that's why she hates it. I'm just trying to recall that. And, and, uh, and it's, just a, normal... it's just a normal siren. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever reason it reminds her of It's a Knockout.
0: <laughs> oh, Tim, the, the 80s, what, what treasures they hold. <laughs> um, thank you for bringing us some highlights and, and sharing your oh, fascination. Uh, Tim Ross, he's a, he's a comedian and a design nerd. Um, his his latest show, now now touring the Burbs, Rosso 88. A bunch of cities and dates. Uh, we'll pop a link for your information online at the, the Blueprint page at the Radio National website. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.